Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. And just in case you are having a a reflex reaction and wanting to turn to 1 Timothy, don't do that. We're going to be in Matthew this morning. We're going to take a little bit of a break, just a one-week break from our study in 1 Timothy. And I want us to look at a text this morning that helps to set the stage for where we go every year on this particular Sunday. And it's from Luke chapter 18. It's a familiar passage, but it's one that we don't talk about that often. It's Luke chapter 18, and we're going to begin reading in verse 15. Just a few verses. And Luke lets us know he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that is, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, thank you. Thank you for this time of worship, this gathering of believers where we can remember your word, remember your gospel, and praise you for all that you've done. And now as we continue to worship by focusing on your word and hearing it taught and expounded, Lord, I pray that you would move among us to convince us of the truths we find here, but also to spur us on to value life the way Jesus did, even infant life, and I would say even pre-born human life. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for our commitment as a church to issues that arise out of the scripture. Help us to be faithful and diligent. Help us to be committed to your truth, even when it is hard, even when it goes against the grain of our culture, or maybe even against some of the things that we were taught as children. Lord, teach us now and spur us on. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the ancient Near Eastern world, children, especially infants, They weren't always welcomed. Right here, the passage is about Jesus welcoming the children and the disciples having a problem with that. Well, this was not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern world. Even beyond what we see in Scripture, we know some things. We know that infant mortality rates were very high in the ancient Near Eastern world, and that means that many babies who were born, they died very young. Many were stillborn or died during labor and delivery. And for those who made it out of the womb, hunger was a constant threat because there were already too many mouths to feed and not enough food to go around. And when you throw in the the other natural disasters and and wars and things like like that, the the weakest, the children, were the one who suffered the most. You may have heard of this word exposure. Exposure was a common practice in the ancient Near Eastern world for babies born into poverty. Unhealthy or unwanted babies were abandoned, simply left out in the elements or left on trash heaps to die. This was a common practice. Boys were preferred over girls, which meant that baby girls were less likely to grow to maturity. Babies were seen as a burden, not a blessing. 
And the steps that humanity took to rid themselves of their unwanted children were absolutely horrific. From 2000, or I'm sorry, from 230 BC onward, the most common family in the Greco-Roman world was a one-child family. Families with four or five children were very rare. And for those families who had additional children that were unwanted, they had some of the options I've already mentioned, but they also had the option of selling their child into slavery. And it was also an option. Some would intentionally abort their children. Mothers would ingest poisonous cocktail of medicines and herbs intended to end the life of the child. And if that didn't work, infanticide was not off the table. I know this is shocking. I know this is probably not how you wanted this to go or thought it would go. But this tells us something. For a child to be born in this phase of life, in this season of our world, their their chances were not great. For a child to be recognized as a part of the family, the father had to officially acknowledge that child and receive them into his home. Some didn't do that. All of this points to the fact that in the ancient world, there was a lot of hostility towards children. The people of God saw it a little bit differently, quite a bit differently, in fact. The children of God saw that children were, in fact, a blessing from the Lord. The Jews would welcome children into their home as a gift from God. And that same sentiment just continued to spread when Christianity uh, came onto the scene and the gospel began to change people's hearts. Those same Jews who had that same intention, they continued forward with that. And new Christians who were coming in as Gentiles began to learn a new approach to, uh, to children. The early Christians opposed exposure. They opposed abortion. They opposed infanticide. Christians were known uh, in the first century and beyond, to go out to those places where children were often exposed and they would pick those children up off of the trash heaps and then take them home and raise them as their own. This was a common practice among the church. And this was even codified into law or rules among Christians as early as the Didache. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of that term. The Didache was an early Christian document. It contained what is known as the teaching of the twelve apostles, and it stated, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not procure abortion, nor commit infanticide. So the the early church was rallying around what the Bible teaches about the value of human life, and they began to see culture change. Tertullian was a name you might be familiar with. He's a late second century Christian apologist, and he declared this. He said, For us indeed, just as homicide is forbidden, it is also not lawful to destroy what is in the womb while the blood is still being formed into a man. To prevent being born is to accelerate homicide, nor does it make a difference whether you snatch away a soul which is born or destroy one being born. He who is man to be is man, as all fruit is now in the seed." And this sentiment just continued on throughout Christian history. St. Augustine in the 4th century, and Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, and John Calvin in the 16th century all considered abortion and taught that abortion was a grievous act of sin. But in this little passage that we see here, we don't just learn from ancient Near Eastern history, and we don't just learn from early Christian apologists, we learn from Jesus himself. And what Jesus teaches us is he teaches us the value and importance 
Not just of little children, but of infant children, babies. This story lets us in on how Jesus feels about little babies and how he valued them as human beings with eternal souls set to inherit the kingdom of God. In this story, we see Jesus being approached by parents, by moms and dads. And as they come, they're bringing their newborn babies to him and they're seeking a blessing from Jesus. And when the the disciples see this happening, they just step in and they try to put a stop to it. And Jesus rebukes them and says, no, don't undervalue the lives of these children. And then he teaches them a lesson to illustrate something very basic and very important about the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to get into today. And here's why. This morning is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It is a day that we mark on our calendar each year so that we can learn and be reminded that the Bible teaches with profound clarity that every human being, from conception to natural death, is to be respected as a person created in the image of God. We believe that all human life has dignity and is worthy of respect. We believe that human life should be celebrated, protected, fought for, cherished, and valued. And today, we're going to learn a lesson on that from Jesus himself. Two points. Very simply, let them come and let them live. The first one, we see it right here in the text. In verse 16, Jesus called them to him. The situation unfolded and the disciples stepped in to confront what was happening and Jesus pulled the disciples aside and he says to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now this setting is... You know, it's, it's very common. We, if you read through the Gospels, and maybe you're in a Bible reading plan and you're reading through one of the Gospels right now, you know it is not uncommon for Jesus to find himself surrounded by people. He goes from city to city, town to town, preaching the good news, and people come. And, and oftentimes they come to hear him teach, but it is also the ca- on, on many occasions people come because they have a need. They need for Jesus to do something for them. He wants... Uh, They want him to heal their their child in some cases. But in this case, it's not disabled loved ones that they're bringing to Jesus. And it's not uh, demon-possessed family members that they're bringing to Jesus. In this case, it is newborn babies. It's infants. This is one of those unique moments in the Scriptures. And these parents are bringing their children to Jesus in the hopes that he will lay his hands on them And bless them. And the reason they're doing this is that this was a common practice for Jewish parents during that time, in that day. When they had a newborn baby, they would bring their children to uh, the, the elders of the city on the Day of Atonement, and they would ask the elders to bless their children. And the fact that they're asking Jesus to do this lets us know that they, ref- they re- refer to Jesus, they see Jesus, they respect Jesus as a prophet of God, and so rather than going to the city elders, they're coming to Jesus. They've probably already also heard that Jesus has been healing people all over the place. And so this is, this is very common for what's happening in the culture of that day. But a problem arises. A problem arises in the midst of all this happening, and on this day, the problem is not the Pharisees creating problems or the scribes creating problems or the Sadducees creating problems. The problem today, it's the disciples. When the disciples see what's taking place, they step in and they rebuke the parents. They tell the parents, stop bringing your children to Jesus. I mean, that just sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, what what are they thinking? What is going on here? Why would they do this? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons why they might step in and do this. Number one, maybe it's just that they're concerned 
for Jesus. I mean, if you know anything about his life, he, he seldom sleeps. He's constantly moving. He, the demands on him are great. And these disciples love him. They've spent the last few years with him. And they, they probably, out of some deep love and respect for Jesus, don't want him to be bothered by this kind of request. But then there is another reason. That's the first one. The, the next reason is that it seems as though they viewed newborn children as somehow less valuable than the greater needs that were out there, less valuable than the other people that Jesus could be caring for. And if those two reasons ring a bell at all, we can look at it and say, okay, one of those reasons is noble. It's noble for them to want to protect Jesus. And one of those reasons is just simply dead wrong. To assume that newborn babies are of less value than anyone else, it's a gross miscalculation on their part. And you may think there was another reason, and I'm sure there probably are, but based on Jesus' response, it seems accurate to say that in this case, his friends, the disciples, had undervalued the souls of these little babies. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And in this one statement, Jesus does two things. Number one, he, he, he underscores the value, the sanctity of all human life, even infant life. But he also reveals the error of the disciples. They tried to send the children away because they believed that the kingdom of God was a matter that was beyond them. It did not concern them. In their minds, this was not about the children, and Jesus knows otherwise. Jesus commands the disciples to let the children come. He forbids them to stand in the way. He teaches them that every person is significant in his eyes, especially little children. He welcomes them because their souls are just as valuable as any other human being. The souls of young children are precious in God's sight. But Jesus is not done. Not only does he declare the value of children, but he also uses the children as an illustration of, of one of the, the most basic elements of his kingdom, trust and dependence. Just as a little child is dependent upon and trusts fully in his or her parents for everything, so too are God's children to fully trust and depend on their heavenly Father for everything. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and trust that the Lord has his purpose in our lives and he will accomplish that purpose providing everything that is needed. This is a pretty simple narrative passage. It teaches a, 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 a basic truth, but the implications for this are massive. So let me, let me try to bring it down to something that we might be able to identify with. The question on that day was whether or not newborn babies have value in the eyes of God, and Jesus' answer is yes. These children have souls that will never die. These children have been made in the image of God. They have been born into a world of sin, which Jesus has come to rescue them from by his own sacrifice. His death on the cross is not just for grown-ups who have it all figured out, but also for children whose souls matter to God. This is something we need to understand, something we need to embrace, and something that needs to drive our ministry. Because this is one of, the, one of the basic theological foundational reasons why we do children's ministry. 
This is why we love our children. This is why we pray for our children, why we teach our children and evangelize our children. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. We don't skip over them when it comes to the things of God. Instead, as mothers and fathers, as pastors and teachers, we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord because their lives and their souls matter. And what we're doing is we are preparing them to enter the kingdom of God by faith. And I pray that no one in this room would argue against that point. Maybe you would. I pray that you wouldn't. I pray that no one in this room would would simply say, you know what, all we need to do for kids is just let them play video games in the back. Just go let them watch Netflix. Just let them go goof off. And, And when they're older, then we'll take their spirituality seriously. I don't think anyone would say that we should just pawn off their spiritual development until they're older. No one would say that we don't need to share the gospel with our children until they're older. And the reason has to do with the underlying truth that we see in this passage, that they have dignity, worth, and value that is equal to every other human being and their souls matter to God. We believe that human life, all human life, is sacred. And we believe this because the Bible teaches it. Now, I believe this. If we were to sit the disciples down and ask them whether or not a little baby has value in the eyes of God, I'm sure they would all say, oh, well, yes, of course. So what happened? Well, on this day, they allowed something to crowd out what they believe to be true. They've allowed the pressure of the moment to crowd out their theological understanding. And let me just tell you how that can happen today. I believe this kind of thing happens all the time in the church today. A few years ago, I had a chance to sit down with a group of ladies at the Hope Women's Center in McKinney. We've partnered with the Hope Women's Center as a church for a decade or more. And, and in the course of me getting to know their ministry and, and learning more about what they did, they, they started sharing some demographics with the group of people that were there. And when they shared this, I was a little bit surprised, they, they shared that of the, the women that come to them considering abortion, 91% of them claim to be Christians. And this is in McKinney, Texas. And a claim to be a Christian does not necessarily mean that you are actually a Christian. There are lots of false professions out there, but that was a statistic that stood out to me. 91%. Many of them were active in church. Many of them had grown up in the church. Many of them had years of exposure to Christian doctrine. Many of them were even sympathetic to pro-life truths. But then they got pregnant. And the pressure of the moment is causing them to reconsider what they believe to be true. Now they're pregnant and their daddy's a deacon. Or they're pregnant and their father is a church leader or a pastor. They're still in high school. They're in college and they feel that they're in no position to raise a child. Or maybe they simply don't want their friends to know what has happened, what they've done. They feel ashamed and and they want to hide their shame from those around them. This is happening in churches all across the country and all across our city. Children growing up completely pro-life until they get pregnant, and like the disciples, they allow the pressure of the moment to crowd out their understanding of what is good and right and true. And that's where we need Jesus to step in and tell us, remind us, teach us 
what truly matters. He says, let the children come. Don't hinder them. And I know I'm, I'm making a leap here, but let me, let me take that and speak directly to our women, especially our young women, and say that every life matters, even the ones you didn't plan. There is help for you. There is love for you. There is understanding for you. And there is grace for you, abundant, overflowing, matchless grace for you in Christ. The first point of this passage is the command of Jesus, let them come. And the second point that I want to make is a very similar one, let them live. In this story, the question was about newborn babies, but I want to broaden the conversation a little bit by asking another question. What about unborn babies? And that's what we're talking about. What about unborn babies? Now, it's clear in the text in Luke 18 that the infants in question are newborns. And someone might say, well, it's, it's really a stretch for you to claim that there, there's this, the same thing is happening for a newborn and an unborn life. And to claim that the sanctity of human life is pr- present in this passage, you're, just, you're stretching the text beyond where it naturally goes. And let me show you why I disagree. I'm going to give you a couple of examples why I disagree. One is just from the studies that we've done over the years. This is the 13th year in a row that, we, that I or someone here, Jeremy, preached a, a message years ago. It, it's the 13th year in a row that we have preached on the subject of the sanctity of human life on the third Sunday of January. And in those sermons, I have preached... Uh, I've argued from science and from history and from scripture and from common sense that there is no way to view an unborn child as anything other than an unborn human being. Contrary to pro-abortion rhetoric, a fetus is a distinct human person worthy of life. Over the years I have preached in order to present the truth about when human life begins We've looked at the testimony of science, which declares that human life begins at the point of conception. Let me give you a quote here. This is from Dr. Jaime Gordon. He's the founder, professor, and chairman of the Department of Medical Genetics at Mayo Clinic. In other words, not a nobody. Here's what he says. But now we can say unequivocally that the question of when life begins is no longer a question for theological or philosophical dispute. It is an established scientific fact. Theologians and philosophers may go on to debate the meaning of life or the purpose of life, but it is an established fact that all life, including human life, begins at the moment of conception. Close quote. This doctor and many others has only just caught up to what the Bible already teaches to be true. In Psalm 51 and Psalm 139, where we learn that even in the womb, God is knitting together a human person. That God has a purpose and a plan for a a, a child, even from the point of conception. And he is known by God intimately created by God for a purpose. We're not dealing with a clump of cells in the womb. We're dealing with human persons who've been created in the image of God, and we need not forget that. But I'll go on and say this. In the Scriptures, God makes no distinction between a pre-born baby and a newborn baby. Did you hear that? In the Scriptures, God makes no distinction between a pre-born baby and a newborn 
baby. They are both human persons that he has created and they should be valued as such. And I'm going to prove that point in an exegetical manner. And for those of you who aren't accustomed to this type of teaching, I want you just to bear with me and think deeply because this matter requires us to think deeply. In in Luke 18, verses 15 through 17, the passage we've been looking at, we see this point driven home. The word infant there, the word infant that we see in the text, in the Greek it's the word brephos. And the ESV has rightly translated that word as infant. It can be translated as newborn baby. These are little babies. And this is a word that is different from the word that is commonly used in the New Testament to describe a child or a toddler. That word would be paidon. And in order to make the distinction that Luke is trying to make, he uses this term brephos to show that the children that were being brought to Jesus on this day were little newborn babies. They weren't little kids running around. They weren't toddlers. They were newborn babies. And you might say, well, how does that make clear that God views preborn and newborn infants in the same light? Well, this is not the only time Luke uses this word. In Luke chapter 1, we're introduced to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is old in age. She and her husband had not been able to have a child, but God has blessed them with a son in their old age, and that son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And there comes a day when Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth see one another. You remember this story? They come together, they see one another. And at this time, Mary is also pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And when these two come into contact with one another, Luke tells us that the baby, the brephos, in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps. Later in Luke 2, an angel appears to a group of shepherds on the outskirts of Bethlehem, and they are told that if they go into the city, they will see a sign. They will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And can you guess which word Luke uses in the verse? He uses the word brephos. And and here's what that means. When, When the scriptures describe a baby in the womb, it uses this word. When the scriptures describe a baby that has been born, it uses this word. They're the same. And what this means is that in the, eyes of the God, there's absol- in the eyes of God, there's absolutely no distinction between the baby inside the womb and the newborn baby outside of the womb. They're both human beings. There's nothing fundamentally different between a preborn human being and a newborn human being. Nothing changes when a child travels down the birth canal. It doesn't matter what our court system says. It doesn't matter what political leaders say. To the contrary, God's Word rules over all, and he declares that from the moment of conception, what we are dealing with is a human person that is just as valuable as any other. All human life is sacred. From the baby in his mother's womb, to the newborn in her mother's arms, to the toddler holding his daddy's hand coming in the church doors, all the way to the elderly grandmother who's come under the care of her children. All human life is precious because God declares it to be so, and he reveals it to be so us. So what do we do with this? Jesus welcomed the little children, even the infants, when others would have simply pushed them away because they were inconvenient. And that's still happening. 
He valued them, he loved them, and he teaches us to do the same. He took them into his arms, he blessed them, but ultimately he went to the cross to die for them. He ties the value of these infants to his kingdom. He didn't see them as a burden, he didn't see them as a hindrance to life, but as future members of the kingdom he had come to establish with his own blood. Now this past year, as, as a family, Cornerstone, we welcomed seven newborn babies. Seven. And if I'm not mistaken, I think there's about six still on the way. Their little lives matter to us. Their little lives matter even more to the Lord. And when we hear those cries in the back of our sanctuary during worship, we should praise God that he has filled our seats with healthy children to raise and to teach and to prepare for the kingdom. Their cries in worship are a sign of God's blessing. Their appearance on our church role and in our overcramped nursery and in future classrooms, that is a reminder that we have work to do in teaching them the timeless truths of God's word. And by God's grace, we pray that they will be members of the kingdom of God. So church, let's settle in our minds that we will value life the way Jesus did. Let us be comforted that we too, at times, need to be corrected, just like the disciples needed to be corrected. They had created a hierarchy of human worth, and Jesus needed to set them straight, and we need to let the words of Jesus set us straight as well, for, for this matter and, and all other matters relating to the sanctity of life. And as a result, we need to fight for life. We need to value human life, all human life. And we need to do our part not only to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but to fight in this cultural battle we find ourselves in, to do whatever we can through our voice, through other means, to ensure that children have an opportunity at life. So what do we do specifically? Number one, vote for life. At every level, city, county, state, federal, the evil of abortion is something that no Christian should ever support. And I understand that your political affiliation is deeply personal. But brothers and sisters, we should seek to honor God and uphold the truth even with our vote. Use your voice and your vote to value human life the way Jesus did. Number two, get educated. If the only time you ever hear about this subject is when I preach on it once a year, then you have a lot to catch up on. There are so many books, articles, sermons, debates. There is so much available to you to educate yourself. We have books in our library, and there are websites and ministries that we would heartily recommend to you to get educated yourself and to educate your children. So, Educate yourself on this topic, even if it confronts your feelings. Number three, engage with others. Engage with others. There's a way to engage as Christians. We do so with the truth, but we do so with love. We are still commanded to love our neighbors, even if they firmly disagree with us on this point. But we have a responsibility to speak the truth in love. So engage, challenge people, challenge their assumptions. People say some of the craziest things about newborn babies as if they don't know 
what science has taught us, as if they don't know what technology has revealed to us, as if they don't know what the scriptures teach us. And maybe it is because they don't know. And so we speak the truth in love. When you engage with someone, make them support their assumptions. College students, challenge your professors on this. Do it in a respectful and loving way, but challenge your professors on this. Educate yourself and seek to use your knowledge of the truth to inform others. Because here's the deal. Lives are at stake. There's no question. Number four, be involved. Be involved on a local level by supporting Christian organizations that are pro-life, such as Crisis Pregnancy Centers. We have partnered with the Hope Women's Center in McKinney for years now through their baby bottle campaign and other events. And I encourage you to look them up or to go visit their website, myhope.org. Real simple, myhope.org. Or you can even visit their office like I did. Find out what they're doing. See how you can get involved. See how you can spare some money to help them in the work that they are doing. And then lastly, and there's probably more, but I'll stop here. Pray. Pray. Pray for educators, pray for politicians, pray for school teachers, pray for those making decisions about abortion, pray for yourself, pray for your family, pray for this church, pray for our city and for our country, pray for our president and our political leaders, pray for our future president and political leaders, pray for our judges, pray that God would open our eyes to the beauty and sanctity of all human life, especially those with special needs, because that is a particular area of focus right now for those who are screaming in pro-abortion terms. Pray that God would bring an end to the grievous injustice of abortion and pray about how might you might support efforts to help in the fight. Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for truths that we can see, read, learn for ourselves. And thank you for your spirit who presses these truths into our minds, but also into our hearts. And I can, I can be fairly certain that this is a very sensitive subject for many in this room today. So Lord, I pray that the truth would bear the fruit of love. I pray that your truth would bear the fruit of faithfulness and obedience. And for those who've been a part of this in their past, or maybe even considering it now, Lord, I pray that your grace and kindness would motivate them and move them to embrace the truth that Jesus tells us here about the value of human life. Lord, help us and accomplish your purpose through us to the end of this injustice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.